morning. My name is Matt Bohr, and I serve here as an elder. And today we'll be reading from Luke 15, 4 through 10. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he has come home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We're asking, God, that you would do a work in our hearts, that we wouldn't be passive participants in this moment of worship, but instead, by your grace, you would allow us to see where we need to repent, where we need to be built up, and how you would make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 32, and Matt read the first part of it. My assignment this morning is, I think, a little bit challenging, a little bit of a tough assignment today, and, and let me sort of ex- explain why. These three parables that we're going to look at from Jesus do a really good job of telling us some important things about God. But the difficulty is what, a, what I want us to understand about what it means to know something about God. So let me just say it this way. If somebody said, well, who was your, your best friend in high school? I don't know who your best friend in high school was. I don't need to know. But you say, well, it was Billy. No, tell me about Billy. What was, what was Billy like? Well, he's five foot ten. He had brown hair, green eyes. He was right-handed. <laughs> what do you know about Billy? You know nothing. You don't know anything about Billy. And this is what we do with, with God. We say, well, tell me something a little bit about God, you know, the one you worship. And well, he's all-knowing, he's sovereign, he's righteous, he's holy, he made everything, he always has been, he always will be. Uh, these things are true of about God, aren't they? They, should, they are, and they're things we should know, and they're things we should believe. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are, these are important things we should know about God. But someone might say, what's he like? What does he do on the weekends? Yeah, that, that would be the question. We have, we've described God, but we haven't, we haven't known him. And these three parables are trying to tell us what God is like. Tell us a little bit about what God does for fun on the weekends. The happiness of heaven. We want to learn what God is like as a person, not merely his important stats. 
And we do this all the time. So if you were to meet someone new, a couple of questions uh, you might ask them as you're getting to know somebody. What, 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 well, let me start with some things you wouldn't ask them. You wouldn't necessarily ask them, how old are you? You wouldn't, unless they're a little kid. Kids love to say how old they are, and adults love to lie about how old they are. That's normal. You wouldn't ask them how much they weigh. Some of you guys need to be writing this down, okay? <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is info you need. Like, I don't understand why nobody likes me. Get that one down. You might ask them, what do you do for work? Yeah, that's a question you might ask. What do you do for work? That might tell you a little bit about what they are. Are they an engineer? Are they a business owner? Are they an artist? Are they an artisan? Are they a farmer? Are they a construction worker? Are they a physician? That might tell you a little bit about where their interests lie. You might ask them what they do for fun. What are some hobbies you enjoy? Oh, I play golf. Or I, I go hunting. I like riding my uh, bike. I work out. We go to the movies. We like going to live performance. We like going to the gallery. I enjoy reading literature from England. That's where it's in English, but some words have a U in them that shouldn't. <laughs> Makes you feel very smart when you read them. Knowing what somebody does for fun tells you a little bit about them. What does God do that brings him happiness, the happiness of heaven? God saves lost people. God saves lost people. Last silly illustration, and by that I mean I have several more. Somebody might have restored a classic car. You might know guys like this. They've restored a classic car. Maybe you can imagine somebody has a, a classic Chevelle or something like that, and they've restored it and rebuilt the engine, and they've got it painted just right, and the interior was redone. It's all stock. It's, you know, none of that new aftermarket garbage. It's just the, how it came right off the line. And then one day it goes out, and it won't start. And here's what he says. Oh, no, I've got to spend the whole day in the shop working on my Chevelle. Right, no, do you guys know this guy? Is he bummed about being in the whole day in the shop working on a Chevelle? No, best day ever. Now he can get out of going to a second niece's twice removed wedding that he didn't want to go to. No, I got to get the Chevelle going. There's a show next week. And so this is God. We think, oh, we think he's irritated at having to save lost people. The Bible, these parables are going to make it quite clear. He is overjoyed about having to go out and save lost people. God takes the initiative to have the joy of finding the lost, and he's, he's actively engaged in his pursuit of his enjoyment of finding lost people that comes through redeeming sinners. Look at verses 1 and 2. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is grumbling that is coming from religious leaders because of Jesus' associations, and they found his associations offensive. The assumption was that if somebody related with tax collectors and sinners in the manner in which Jesus did, meaning friendly conversations, did not rebuff them, and eating a meal with them, the assumption was he condoned their behavior. That's what those associations meant. If he were to eat with somebody, the assumption at that time would be that this person condoned the behavior of these individuals. 
Eating with somebody was the same as approving of somebody. And, and what Jesus wants to show is the way in which he, that is God, associates with sinners. And he wants to show this for a very, very important reason. It's this. He wants to show that God pursues joy in saving lost people. He wants the religious leaders to understand that God does this on purpose. He, he, he takes the initiative to pursue lost people because he takes great delight in it. And here's, here's Jesus' concern with the religious people. He's not concerned that they've misunderstood him. He's not concerned. Jesus isn't eating with, law, with tax collectors and sinners and thinking, oh, gee, well, maybe if I made my position a little bit more clear, they would be less offended. Do you know what he's actually doing? Because he's not doing that. What is he doing? He doesn't feel they're offended enough. No, no, you have no idea how close I want to be with these people. You're, you're not nearly offended enough. Your response clearly, I need, to, I need to really open your eyes to how deeply offended you ought to be because not only am I associating with these sinners, I think this is the best day ever. I'm having a great time right now other than the religious leaders. And that's what he wants to explain. So that's what these three parables are trying to show us about God and his pursuit of those who are lost. He is overjoyed to take the initiative to go out and engage in the pursuit of the lost, to draw them to redemption, and the entire process of that brings him great joy. Let's look at this first parable, beginning in verse 3. He told them this parable. Matt read it for us. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if you lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the, lost, the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So he has 99 sheep. They're protected. He likely either put them in the pen or the care of other shepherds. One is lost, and he takes joy in going out and finding the sheep. Now, the hope is for the standard shepherd, the hope is he finds a sheep and not parts of sheep. And hopefully he finds one sheep in one place and not parts of sheep in many places. That's what the, the hope is. And he takes delight in going out to rescue this, this lost sheep. And the contrast is the delight of the shepherd when compared with the delight he has in the one sheep compared with the delight he has in the 99. He takes no delight in the unchanged status of the 99 he takes great delight in the status of the one sheep that went from lost to found. He takes great joy in that. He says, rejoice with me to his friends. I have found my sheep that was lost. He celebrates. He calls together his friends and his neighbors. Celebrate with me because joy has happened because something went from lost to found. Verse 7, this tells us a little bit of what he is describing in terms of heaven. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous, person, right, righteous persons who need no repentance. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There is a party that takes place. And it's in the future tense, just so I tell you. There will be more joy in heaven. When is that? He's talking about the end of times. 
there is a party that is going to come. And this party is coming because there will be joy over this lost one finding God through faith and repentance because God sought him out. Over 99 persons who need no repentance. Now, how many persons are there who need no repentance? There's not 99. To quote Isaiah, there is none. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seek after God. And so what he is saying here is not that these people don't need repentance. It's that they don't think they need repentance. These are well-behaved religious people. They have their uh, I's dotted and, and T's crossed. They know their theology up one side and down the other, and they can good behave you around the block. They never do the bad stuff, always do the good stuff. And the shepherd takes no delight in the unchanged status of these unrepentant self-righteous. Yet this one sinner who was lost, the shepherd took great delight to go out and find this sheep, and having found it, he throws it over his shoulders, carries it home, and takes great delight. Why would a sinner need to repent? Because sin is rebellion against God, the shepherd who is coming to find us. So finally, a sinner gets to a place, they say, wait a second, I can choose my sin or a relationship with God who takes joy in finding me. I would rather have God. And the Bible makes it clear, Jesus came to take care of that sin problem. Because who is going to cover the cost of our sin? It's Jesus himself. He dies on the cross to cover the cost of that sin. So when we repent, what he's saying about this repenting sinner is he's saying, my sin is destructive, my Savior is saving me. I want to turn to him in faith that I might receive forgiveness of sin and life in him. It's a, it's a matter of faith. I trust him to save me. Repentance from sin, that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying well, someone who turns to a Savior who is overjoyed to save him, it generates a party in heaven. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous persons. How many parties in heaven over the self-righteous? Zero parties. Look at verses 8 through 10. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying... Rejoice with me, I found the coin that I had lost. So she loses a coin, she assumes it's in the house, she's making a diligent search. She might have to empty the home, she might have to take the, the belongings out of the home so that she can see all the places this coin might have landed. She makes a, a diligent and a thorough search, sweeping the house. This isn't a cursory search that you can sort of say, well, I looked, but I couldn't find it. This isn't to check the box, I did the search. This was a I'm going to search, and the search is over when what happens? When I find it. That's when the search is over. This is the manner in which God approaches his job of searching out sinners. Now, the coin is a little bit different than a sheep in terms of how they work. Let me explain to you the differences between a coin and a sheep. I'm sure that's what you need, right? A sheep, a shepherd might say, maybe. You know, we've gone back to the same sheepfold every night. Maybe, maybe the sheep will wander back, right? Sheep walk. There's a chance maybe the shepherd wouldn't have to actively engage and look for this sheep. Maybe if we all go back, this sheep will know, hey, it's nighttime. Maybe I should go to where the shepherd normally keeps the sheep. And maybe the sheep will just find its way home, right? A coin is a little bit different. 
coins don't wander back. Once a coin lands and all of its energy is expelled, it's going to sit there. Unless more energy is added, like through an earthquake or something like this, right? So the coin is just going to sit there. The only way a coin is going to be found is if somebody finds it. And there's an important distinction, especially for religious people, and I'm gesturing towards all of you and me, because we find ourselves in church on Sunday. I feel pretty safe calling people who get up early to go to church religious people. We sort of presume we're the sheep that would have wandered back. And he tells us this parable to make us sure, no, 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 you are like a coin. You're just going to lay there until somebody picks you up. That, that's what it is. You're just going to... You're going to lay there until God takes the initiative to find you. And so, like this woman, God is making a diligent and thorough search, taking great delight in it, until he finds it purposefully. Look what happens in verse 10. Each of these parables builds on each other, adds a little bit more to the picture of what God is like. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over the sinner who repents. What I want you to notice there is the tense of the verb. There, when is the joy? Right now. So in the previous parable, when is the party? Later. That's a good picture of it. But when is the party now? Right now. So when's the party end? No, it's just on. It's, this is just what we do. Heaven is just rejoicing. So yes, there's a rejoicing coming. Why? Because it started today, we learn in this parable, that in this moment when a sinner says, you know what, my sin is killing me. I'll take for life in a Savior who takes delight in finding me. God goes up to the angels and says, another one came home. And there is a party. And that party keeps going from now till then. And my understanding is it keeps going. There is great joy in the lost being found. Today with the angels, I, like you, I want you to think about angels. Do angels see some cool stuff? Angels see some cool stuff. I like, I like what Gabriel said to Zechariah when Zechariah was in uh, lighting some stuff. I don't know. And he sort of balked at the idea that his wife could get pregnant. I mean, she was 29, apparently. <laughs> and uh, what did Gabriel say? You remember what Gabriel said to him? Bro. I stand in the presence of God. You better check yourself. This is in the Greek. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. I stand in the presence of God. I've seen some stuff. Okay? I, I stand in the glory of God all the time. I have seen some stuff that would blow your socks off, Zach. What gets the angels partying? Because you would think, these guys need something pretty cool to get them to party. Because they've seen God for a long time. One sinner repents, it's on. They are, it's on. This is what brings happiness to heaven. One sinner repenting. These angels are ready to go. Here's what I want you to draw out of these first two parables before we get to the third most well-known parable, the parable of the lost son. God derives joy in redeeming. God derives joy in redeeming lost people. It's not merely the joy of avoiding loss, because that's how we might be thinking about it. Well, he takes joy and he finds the coin because now he has all of his coins. It's not the joy of avoiding loss. 
God is unchanging, has always been, will always be. Is there anything about reality that would make God less than what he currently is? No, he's unchanging. God would have been well within his rights at the moment of the sin of Adam and Eve to simply end the project, cut it all out, be done, nuke it all, and what would, he would have been unchanged. God is not overjoyed at avoiding a loss. That's what we do. When we find something of high value, we're joyful. Oh, good, because I thought I, was, I, thought I, was, I had lost this important asset, which had, which had a, a significant effect on my sense of well-being. That's not the case here. God just takes joy in finding the lost. He's not uh, simply taking joy because he's avoiding heartache. God, of course, is grieved by sinners and when we rebel against him, but his presence, his experience of himself is unchanged. The issue is, what is God like? He is a God who redeems. He is a God who finds lost people, and he's happy about it. One last illustration, because it's October. Apparently, it's hunting season. I know it hasn't rained for a while, so I know some of the hunters are a little frustrated about how quiet you can be in the woods when it's dry as a bone. Here's the thing about hunters. Maybe you know a hunter. I know you're not a hunter. How do I know that? You're here. Here's the thing about hunters. Think about it this way. This isn't a hard question. Are you ready? Are the stores out of meat? Like, are they out? No, I know, but you can't. There was a great humorist. His name was John F. McManus. Maybe you've heard of John F. McManus. Great humorist from years ago. And one time in one of his articles, he wrote down and documented the price per pound of the deer he gets each year. Let's just say he could buy prime Kobe beef for the price of that unchewable deer he bagged. I mean, you know, why do hunters hunt? Because it's fun. Because it's fun. There's something about it. Now, some of you, that doesn't sound fun at all. I understand. But this is what God is doing about finding lost people. He enjoys finding lost people. He derives joy in the search. He derives joy in the thoroughness, in the diligence, in the pursuit. He wants these religious leaders. Listen, guys, I'm not just sort of holding these sinners at arm's length. When I'm having lunch with them, you do not understand how much fun I'm having. You have no idea. He's so concerned the religious leaders aren't offended enough. No, this is his delight. I would, I would be nowhere else than sitting here. God finds lost people, and he's happy about it. God pursues joy, and he finds joy in finding the lost. God is saving the lost. Maybe I can say it this way. And he's having a great time doing it. Here's the thing, though. He wants you to be a part of that fun. He wants us to be a part of, of experiencing the joy he's experiencing in seeing the lost found and being a part of that celebration that happens when the lost come home. Happiness of heaven. God pursues joy and the happiness of heaven. Let's look at verses 11 through 32. God wants you to experience his Joy. This is the parable of the lost son. Which we're all familiar with. 
let me uh, start with this. Uh, here's a scene uh, that we sometimes see in the summertime. And uh, summertime now apparently goes till at least the middle of October. Maybe you've been to a resort or something like this and you're sitting by the pool and you've seen this happen or you've been a part of this happening. In the pool, there is a dad. So dad is in the pool. He's in the shallow end. The water's up to about his waist. He's standing, you know, a couple of feet from the edge. And on the edge of the pool, there's a kid standing on the edge of that pool. You know what I'm talking about? The kid has a swimmer's cap on, has goggles on, has swimmers on, swimmer you know, blowy-up thingies. He's got an inner tube around and a life jacket. If the kid jumps in the pool, there's a chance they won't get wet. That's how buoyant <laughs> they are. And what's, the, what's the dad saying to the kid? Jump in. Now, why does the dad want the kid to jump in the pool? No, because jumping in the pool is fun. My understanding. And the last time I jumped in the pool, it's kind of fun. There's nowhere else I get to just jump in. So the dad knows if the kid will jump in the pool, that the kid's going to realize how fun it is. Then the, kid, the dad will have trouble getting the kid to stop jumping in the pool. And that's the whole idea. I just need the kid to jump in a couple of times, realize everything is okay, and then the kid will never, ever stop jumping in the pool. This is what God is trying to do with us. He's trying to coax us in. He, I want you to be a part of what I'm up to because this is a kick. This is where joy is found. And God in his kindness wants us to be a part of the joy that he's experiencing in seeking the lost. He calls on us to join in the celebration of redemption with him. Unlike the religious leaders who want to stand away because they're offended that Jesus would eat with sinners, Jesus wants us to grab a plate and sit down and enjoy the meal with him. The, prodigal, uh, the lost son, the prodigal son, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Man, what a great story. Just, even when you just read it, don't you meet? You're hooked. This guy is good. I'm talking about Jesus, not Luke. So there was a guy, he had two sons, older son and a younger son. And the younger son approaches the father. This is in verse 12. Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me, future tense, that will be coming to me, coming in the future. When? When you're dead. Give me the share of property that I would receive upon your death. We don't know how much that is. The parable doesn't say. There's two options. It could have been he would have been received half of the uh, estate. The other option is, since he's the younger son, the older son might have received the double portion. So therefore, the older son would receive two-thirds, and the younger son would receive one-third. Either way, the father divides it and provides to the younger son his portion. No objection is raised. He, re he divided his property between them, gave the older son his portion, gave the younger son his portion. Not too long after, the younger son leaves. Where does the younger son go? He doesn't leave town. He doesn't leave the region. He leaves the country. He gets his passport, gets on a plane. He's gone. And immediately he starts enjoying that which comes from his newly found wealth. He spent everything on reckless living. Everything he had on all the things. I don't think I need to provide you a roadmap of what this would have looked like. These were not responsible investment choices he was making. He was spending money on anything that would make him feel good. From the company he kept, to the food he ate, to the beverages he drank. Whatever could give him the crank and the, 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 the juice he needed, he would pursue it and he would spend it. And soon, he had spent all his money. We don't know how long it took. 
probably didn't take nearly as long as he thought it would have. Then he's hit with a double whammy. Not only is he out of money, but a severe famine hits the country. So if you're broke, you could go down to the food bank or maybe beg and find some food. In this case, he's broke and there's a famine. No one's sharing food because even people with money don't have enough food. So he realizes he's in trouble. He begins to be in need, which means he began to be kind of hungry. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of this country, and this is in verse 15. And lo and behold, not only was he given a terrible job feeding livestock, he was given a job that no self-respecting Jew would want. He was feeding pigs. Not only was he feeding livestock, he was feeding pigs. Not only was he doing these, he was also doing so for such low pay that he still could not afford to buy the food he needed. Look what he said, verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. What does that mean? It means he's getting paid, but not enough to eat. Not enough to eat enough that when he got to work, he was full. He might have been able to buy a little bit of food, but the price of food, if there's a famine, what happens to the price of food? What do we call that? We're familiar. That's called inflation, right, okay. So he can barely afford to eat. But when he came to himself, hunger will do that. The consequences of sin will do that. When finally our choices have devastated enough of our life, sometimes all of a sudden we go, you know what, I'm an idiot. When that happens is anybody's guess, but it's also a work of the Holy Spirit. But here's what happens. He comes to his senses. I want you to pay close attention to what he says about his father here. Verse 17, how many of my my father's hired servants have what? More than enough bread. He knows something about the father here. We learn something about the character of this father. Here is is the son. He's a servant. Common a common role in a household, especially in agricultural times. Here is, he's doing his job, and how much is he getting paid? Not enough to live on. Then he thinks about people doing the exact same job for his father, and those same people get paid enough that after they buy their food and after they eat their food, what? There's still food. That's what his father is like. Does his father have to pay his people enough to have extra food? Of course not, especially during a famine. There's plenty of labor, like this guy. Do you think he would gladly take a job for just slightly more food? Of course he would. The father was not required to pay his servants enough that they would have more than enough to to feed themselves and their family. So the son here understands something about the father and his character. He is one where his servants are treated well. Here I am, I'm hungry. And then he comes up with a speech. Verse 18, this is a a statement of repentance. I will go to my father and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Are all those things true? Yes. Did he sin against heaven? Yep. Did he sin against the father? Yep. Is he unworthy to be called his son? Correct. All these things are true. Absolutely true. So he arose and went to his father. 
When he finally saw his father, it's down verse 21, he was not able to get the whole speech out. He got part of the speech out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Got that part out. It's true. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. And the father interrupts him right there. Boom. You're done talking. You forget, you've forgotten who are you talking to. This is your dad. And you know what I'm like. Your speech, I get it. You're back. Look what the father did. The father, when the son was a far way off, this is verse 20. When, the, when he saw his son way out in the distance, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, never happens, embraced him, gross, kissed him, grosser still, fell upon his neck, kissed him, and then he immediately responds to his son's return. Bring the, the best robe. Put it on him. No shower. Just put the robe on him. Put, him. put some new sandals on his feet. Put a ring on his finger. What does he say immediately to his son upon return? You are my son. That is your identity. You are wearing my robe. You are wearing my ring. You are my son. This is what the father is like. He doesn't restrain his joy. He, he, he gladly pours out his love. He runs to his son, which is a sign of, if the, if the father would have hoped to negotiate his return, he's given up his strength of his position. By, by showing how deeply he loves his son, his son immediately could have known, oh, now I can manipulate dad. He's, he's invested emotionally. I can, I can tweak the heartstrings to get what I want. Dad doesn't care. He's glad his lost son is home, having re returned from his sin. The celebration ensues. The son is given the status of family, and the fattened calf is eaten. The fattened calf is never eaten. That's why it's fat. It was only, it was only killed to be eaten in the most significant, important of events. There's one other person in this scene. This is the older son. The older son had never left. He had stayed with his father. His older son was out in the field working as he was, and when he drew near this verse 25, he heard music and dancing. Being a good religious person, he was already offended. I'm kidding. He wasn't. Dancing was coming then. He called one of the servants and said, what's going on here? The servant said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry. Father is in associating with sinners. The father finally is called out of the party, has to meet his older son on the outside. And, and the older son, this is verse 29, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never once gave me the smallest, most insignificant animal in your flock that I could have a little, little snacky-poo with my buddies. But now this son of yours, what did he not say? He did not say, my brother, this son of yours, we do this all the time. If uh, one of the kids gets in trouble while one of the parents is gone, guess what your son did while you were gone? Yeah, that's a common thing. That's what's going on. Your, this son of yours, he's not my brother. Where's his brother? My brother's dead. That's where my brother is. This son of yours shows up and you kill the, the fattened calf, this guy who's devoured your property. And the father responds to him, trying to coax him into the pool. Everything I have is yours. If you want fat and calf, you could have killed it whenever you wanted. 
You could have you had it. All my stuff is yours. What's your problem? Once you come in to the joy of seeing what it's like to be a part of the lost being found. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, the father said. Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. The older brother has never left. He has worked hard. He has been obedient. And he resents the father celebrating for the younger son. He accuses the father of unfairness, even though that's baseless, and he refuses to join the father's party. The younger son realized that this is a father who treats his servants like sons, and the older brother has become irritated that this father treats sons like servants, and he's resentful at the joy of the father overfying a lost one. This parable is a great symbol of something Luke is constantly doing. It's this great reversal. Let me point out a couple of things before we wrap it up. The lost, who should be on the outside, are inside the party. The rebellious sinner, who should be on the outside in the father's house, is on the inside enjoying the music and the dancing, where the older brother, the religious one, is on the outside because he doesn't share in the father's joy of finding the lost ones. He only wants the father to find righteous ones. Unfortunately, there aren't any. And he resents when the father finds this lost sinner. Other reversals here. We see the lost son is happy as a servant, whereas the older brother is resentful to be a son. Because this father has the gall to be generous to both sons and servants. And so the younger son is overjoyed to be merely a servant. And when he returns home, he has said, you're not a servant, you're a son. Whereas the older brother is resentful that this father is so generous, not only to lost sons, but also to servants. In his mind, this father is just a a harsh taskmaster. The lost son is rewarded. He enjoys the the bounty of the fattened calf and the feast and the dancing and the music. An, An entire night dedicated only to enjoying yourself. That's what the lost son enjoyed. The older son is not rewarded despite his hard work because he has not participated in the joy of the father. The lost son is actively seeking out relationship with the father he knows is good, whereas the older son is actively refusing relationship with the father who would party with the likes of him and now just wants the father's stuff. I might add this, and then we'll just close with a couple of little applications. God enjoys sinners more than we do. And the reason is because there's a whole bunch of people out there who sin in ways that are different than us, and it annoys us. Some of us, in me saying that, let me say this again, God enjoys sinners more than we do, what you're doing is you're sitting there going, now, now God's not okay with sin. Okay, good. You're a theologian. Congratulations. You're acting like a religious person here. Is God condoning evil behavior? Never has, never will. But he enjoys sinners. How do I know he enjoys sinners? That's all there is. That's all there is. We enjoy sinners who sin like us, yes. We don't mind if somebody has the same bad habits we do. It drives us bonkers that God enjoys sinners who do sin in ways we find offensive. 
God enjoys sinners more than we do. And maybe we should participate in his joy a little bit. Okay, three little things. We'll close with this. The joy of God. God experiences joy in finding the lost. It brings him delight to bring a lost one home. What we should understand about this is, as sinners is God's disposition towards us, his attitude toward us, his view towards us as sinners is joy. He likes finding us. He likes seeking us out and finding us. Look at all these parables. We got three parables here. We don't have time to do it all again. Who's unhappy in these parables? Just the religious people. Just the older brother. Is the shepherd unhappy? Is it ever say in the parable he's unhappy? No. Is the woman sweeping her house unhappy? No. Both those people have a party. Is the younger son unhappy? He is when he's sinning. He is when he's feeding pigs. Once he finds his father, it's on. Is the father unhappy? He has a party. Killed fat and calf. The only one who is unhappy here is the older brother, the religious people. And guess what? The older brother does not have the power to ruin the father's party. The older brother can stay out all night long, pouting his eyes out. The party is not ending. Let me just put it this way, hopefully to add some encouragement to those of us who aren't perfect. Stop believing the older brothers in your life. God loves finding you. He loves helping you. He loves seeking you. He loves drawing you, every bit of him seeking you from lostness to making you more like Jesus. He is delighting in the whole process. And stop bringing the older, believing the older brother in your life. It might be your own head. It might be the enemy. It might be religious people in your life who are trying to convince you God's disposition towards you is one of annoyance. If you want to believe what God is like, please, I'm asking you, you showed up at a Baptist church, believe what the Bible says. And stop listening to the religious people in your life who say God is mad. He, is, he woke up this morning and he said, I'm going to smite someone. I don't care who it is. That's what we think. God loves finding you. He loves helping you. You woke up this morning. Your sanctification isn't very good. Have you noticed? We did. Do you think God woke up this morning just itching to help you? Yeah, and was he in a bad mood about it? No. No, he wasn't. God loves helping us become more like Christ. God loves pursuing sinners and making them more like Jesus. God loves drawing the lost into foundness. Second thing, as image bearers, those are made in the image of God and those indwelt by his Holy Spirit, we must recognize by looking at the older brother in the parable of the lost son, we miss a significant part of the joy of knowing God when our life is missing the pursuit of the lost like our father. There's great joy that we miss because we have uh, decided the pursuit of the lost isn't for us. And then we wonder, why is my Christian life devoid of joy? There is nothing more exciting in the life of a believer than to be a part of what God is doing to seek lost people whether it be those who are not yet saved or those who have found Christ but need help walking along with God with them. There is no greater joy than seeing someone become more and more like Jesus.
So real simple, put it this way, jump in the pool, it'll be fun. You say, well, I don't know, it sounds scary. I don't know what I can do. I'm, I'm a little scared. Jump in the pool. What does it mean for you to serve the needs of the people around you that they might turn to you and say, where do you get the hope that I see in your life? What if we saw the sinners around us as people and not just annoyances, not just people that do stuff we don't like, people who disagree with us? What if we saw the people around us as an opportunity to experience the joy of our Father as we engage in meaningful relationship with them? Okay, last, uh, last one. We'll close with this. No, I'm serious. Uh, there's some Christians here. I only mention this because this is the way I tend to operate. We think God saved us, saves us, but then he holds a grudge. That's what we, that we would assume. It's like, so I, can't, I come to Jesus. Uh, Lord, I understand I'm a sinner, and I am experiencing great shame and regret, and I know that you offer forgiveness through Jesus, so I trust Jesus to forgive me. And we, our assumption is in heaven, God is going, oh, man, they said the right words. Shoot. Now I have to save them. What a pain. And then the rest of our Christian life, we assume God is just irritated. Oh, my lands, I wish they wouldn't have got saved. They're so high maintenance. Oh, my goodness. This is the most high maintenance person. If I could get out of this salvation deal, I totally would. That's what we assume this is God's disposition. That the only time God is moderately happy with us as believers is that moment of salvation. Yay, angels party. Party over. Now let's get to work. And I'm going to spend the rest of my Christian life making sure you know how you don't measure up to what I gave you. That's what we assume. When did the party start in the parables? When the coin was found. When does the party end in the parables? It doesn't. Still going. It's still going. It's, and you woke up this morning, your sanctification isn't done yet. If you think it is, it's not even close. And the party is still going. And today, you're going to have little things, you really blow it. You're going to have a couple of things you do different because God is working on you, and the party is still going. God is, is delighting in his found people. And some of us need to believe that. We are convinced he is not delighting in us. Now, he's delighting in all these other polished-up Christians, and, 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 but he couldn't, be, he couldn't possibly be delighting in me. Don't believe the lie. God was happy when you got saved. God is happy today because you're still saved. God is happy uh, tomorrow because you'll be saved. And God will be partying with you in eternity because he found you because that's how he takes joy. Here's the great theological principle. Some of you just might need to write this down. Your father is not in a bad mood. He's not. He's not. He said, well, I read Revelation. He seems uptight. That's if you choose to reject the lamb. That's a different story. You reject the lamb. That's his son that died for you. Reject the lamb, I can't help you. You're going to experience the justice of God. That's, that's what you chose, though. But you accept his son by faith... God is not in a bad mood. He is delighted you are his child. He was delighted the moment you believed. He has delighted in you every moment since. He is delighted in you 
today. If you don't believe me, then you just must admit you don't believe your Bible. Because that's what it says. Three parties for lost people. And the party never ends. God, we thank you for the grace you have given us in Jesus. God, we thank you that heaven, our Father, is characterized by happiness and joy. And God, my concern here this morning is there is many of us believers that have become convinced over the years that you are really, really upset at us. God, my prayer would be is that your Holy Spirit right now would remind us of what your word tells us. You are celebrating the lost have been found. God, we thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit and the reminder that we're not home yet and that there's a lot of work yet to become, uh, to be done to become more like our Savior Jesus. But God, we pray you would help us not to miss the fact that you took joy in finding us and you take joy today in us being found. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that are still lost. And they wonder if God would ever receive them because they have a story that fills them with shame and regret and guilt, sadness. I pray, Lord, in this moment, you might open their eyes to you, the Father who receives them with a hug and a kiss and a ring on the finger that says, by faith in Jesus, you are now a son or daughter of the King. I pray in this moment, those today would receive you by faith. Father, I pray also you would help us to have the guts to jump in the pool, to experience the joy of seeing lost found. Would you forgive us for only having relationships with people who believe like us? Would you forgive us for looking down our religious noses at unsaved friends and family? Instead, God, would you give us hearts to associate with those who need hope, that they might see the joy you have given us and ask, how is it you can have hope during such a hard time? Give us the joy that you have in seeing the lost found. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand up with us as we close with the song?